This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey there, HRN listeners. This is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears. I know that news about COVID-19 and the coronavirus has made a lot of people nervous about getting sick. This collective unease has already had a big impact on our restaurant and food communities, especially in New York's Chinatowns. We hope that now more than ever, our listeners will join us in supporting restaurants and the hospitality industry at large. Many of the restaurants we love are small, independent businesses. That means that even one or two bad weeks can put them in jeopardy of cutting staff, limiting hours, or even having to close for good. As long as we're still able, we should go out to eat and support our favorite restaurants. I think it's also great to remember that hospitality professionals are really good at hygiene and food safety practices. Long before there were guides all over the news about how to properly wash your hands, they were already experts at hygiene. Guests' health is tantamount to successful hospitality in any restaurant. And even if you don't want to go out, you can still support restaurants by ordering delivery, buying gift cards, and giving them some extra love on social media. What better way to handle a crisis than by supporting those in our own community? If we don't support them now, they might not be there when this crisis is over. Join HRN in supporting restaurants during this time, especially our friends in Chinatowns around the country. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Miyoko Shinner, founder and CEO of Miyoko's Kitchen, the plant-based cheese and butter company that's changing dairy aisles in grocery stores across the country. A longtime vegetarian and vegan, Miyoko has spent decades teaching people about vegan food and that humans don't need animal products to have healthful, decadent meals. In 2014, Miyoko founded Miyoko's Kitchen which is now selling vegan butters and cheese in over 15,000 retail stores, making it one of the fastest growing alternative dairy companies in the country. I am so excited you're here. Well, I'm excited yeah. to be here. And what a great setting. And I love to see people noshing yeah. right out the yeah, window. Yeah, it's, it's really, really fun. Exciting. Sometimes they like make faces at us and everything. But I love it. I think... Um, I think that there are a few different types of founders. And... Um, I'll just say that you're my favorite kind of founder because you you are clearly not looking to just like fill a white space or see a hole in the market. This is clearly something that has meant a lot to you for decades. Absolutely. And, um, just watching someone build something that's really changing the way that people eat and truly living out your like mission as a person is, um, it's inspiring. So, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate those here. words. Thank you. Um, so I have read about your um, experience and your childhood and your whole story, but why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about where you grew up, when you fell in love with food, sort of how this whole thing began. Sure. So I'm from Japan originally, immigrated to the United States when I was about seven years old. 
uh, when I ate dairy for the first time. And so it's just sort of funny, you know, in retrospect, because I've been given the moniker, the queen of vegan cheese. Um, (laughs) It's a good good moniker, yeah. But the very first time I had cheese, I was about eight years old, and I had a pizza, Mm -hmm. and I practically choked. I thought it was so disgusting. So that was my first introduction (laughs) to cheese. Um, But then I fell in love with it and got addicted like everybody else in the world. Um, And then when I was 12, I went vegetarian. Do you remember... The why? Well, I, yeah, it was it. It stemmed from a camping trip. Okay. Um, and I think as a child, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't making that clear logic in my mind. But yeah. I just, what I remember was I was on a camping trip with these vegetarians. Came home, my mom put pork chops in front of me. Yeah. And it no longer looked appetizing. Yeah. I pushed it away, that and that. I never ate meat again, mm-hmm. ever again. Never thought of it. I mean, just not one second. Yep. And you know, I love, I did love animals. I made some connection in my you know, infantile brain mm-hmm. about um, where that pork chop came from. Yep. And now that I have, I have pigs. I have, um, how many, I think I have seven pigs. I've got three farm pigs and four pot right. bellies. <laughs> um, you know, I couldn't possibly imagine eating yeah. goober or yeah. princess. You know? So that's just in my young mind, you know, yep. somehow that connection was made. Um, and that's really when I fell in love with food because about, Oh, a few weeks after I became a vegetarian, my mother announced that she wasn't going to cook for me anymore. Oh, wow. And that was it. She's like, well, you're on your yeah. own. What do they say? Something is like the Mo- mother. Uh, inve- uh, yeah, the yeah, necessity. necessity is the mother of invention. Yes, yes. And so I had to learn how to cook because... It's yeah. funny that you say yeah. that because I, my mother didn't cook. Um, almost really? sort of as an act of resistance against mm-hmm. sort of the, the power structure that she... You know, it's, it was right. early 70s. And I am so grateful to her that she didn't because the kitchen was my domain. That's right. And I got to play and create. And it really became, I think it changed my whole life trajectory because she didn't cook. Yeah. Absolutely. It really did. I mean, my mother really did me a great service by not cooking. And (laughs) uh, so I learned to cook. I fell in love with cooking. I fell in love with exploring foods Mm -hmm. and figuring out how to get certain taste profiles. All through high school, I was uh, sponsoring baking contests at my house and uh, reading cookbooks. That was one of my pastimes. I just fell in love with food. And then when I went vegan in my 20s, I plunged it plunged into it even more. And you went some, you, you started your first business. It was a vegan bakery in Tokyo. That's right. So when did you go back to Tokyo and did you plan on living there? And, and was the plan to open a business there or how did that end up Oh, happening? yes. Well, I, after college, I went back to Japan right. um, to sort of retrace my roots. Yeah. And I went vegan there. Um, and I did a bunch of odd jobs. Um, but um, I, uh, you know, at that point, I wanted to start a vegan restaurant in Japan. Right. Um, I started the little vegan bakery, which mm-hmm. involved taking multiple subway trains and a bus and walking 10 miles or so to this dusty old bakery. Wow. And um, uh, I exaggerate the number of miles I had to walk, <laughs> but it felt like that, uh, especially with a backpack, because the way I delivered my pound cakes, which is what yeah. I made, was with a backpack, because I didn't have a car. Right. So I had 70 ba- pound 70 cakes, 70 pound cakes, right. so there a pound each in my right. backpack, and I delivered them around Tokyo by subway train. Wow. Um, and I learned to, you know, I learned what bakers did, and yep. it wasn't fun, because, like, you're constantly schlepping, yep. and you come home smelling like baked goods. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you don't enjoy eating them and then so you much don't enjoy anymore, because you have <laughs> yeah. the scent all day. I That's know. right. You got the scent all I day. Know. I mean, it's I worked so. in an ice cream shop for a summer, and it 
it's damaged me forever. Yes, yes, yes. And it permeates all your <laughs> yeah, clothes and everything. Just, I'm like, ugh, ugh, ice cream. Yeah, yeah. I know people have this. That they have this romance, like, oh, I want to have a little bakery, and they have no, no idea what hard work it is. Yeah. So yeah. But yeah. it was. It clearly went well enough that you decided to move the whole operation. Well, back. it wasn't okay. I was telling this story the other night uh-huh. as we ate dim sum in the uh, in the village. Um, what was going on in my mind um, at the time, yep. which was that um, I had found a business partner with whom to open a restaurant. So I was really, really excited, and we were working on opening this this sort of tasting menu French style vegan All restaurant vegan, in Tokyo. Right. It was going to be the way, amazing. By the way, this is like eighties. This is eighties. Uh, well, back I mean, in in the in the mid eighties, I'm telling you, in Cal in America, yeah. I mean, food was like so backwards right you know and tokyo was cutting edge right a phenomenal food people were doing taste tasting menus everywhere so they understood vegan they under they did not understand no. vegan yeah. but i was going to show them right that it could be possible right. that it was going to be great but anyway i got this business partner and long story short it turned out he was part of the yak he was connected to the yakuza which is the japanese mafia <laughs> Okay. And he made my life miserable. That didn't go well. It didn't go yeah, well. Yeah. And basically, I got out of Dodge okay. and I came back to the United States. I, I really plan to live in Japan forever. I love Japan. But were you, I mean, were you like worried about your like physical safety? Oh, yeah. Or? I was worried so about this- my, I mean, well, he wanted to own me. They were basically, <laughs> right. you know, the deal was that I was going to have to give half of everything I ever made right. at, in any enterprise. For the rest I, of your life. The rest yeah. of my life. And I had just gotten this job at this Japanese uh, cooking school, a very, right. very uh, well-known, um, famous cooking school. And they were going to let me do a vegan course there. Right. And they were really excited about it. And we did all the photography and the courses had been published. Yeah. Um, and I was so excited because it was a very, very prestigi- prestigious school. Right. And he, um, when he found out that I, I was not going to give him 50% of my take from uh-huh. that school. Um, I guess they called up the school and oh. they just told them all kinds of oh, made wow. up stories yeah. about me. And the school called me up and said, I'm sorry, but you know, we've um, had second thoughts. Yeah, we've had second thoughts. Yeah. And you know, we've received this call and, and wow. uh, we can't hire you anymore. Um, and he did that with just about every gig oh, I had in town, and that's terrifying. It was it was terrifying. Well, that yeah. it, it gets worse because um, while he was trying to pressure me, um, he was sending people over to my house at three in the morning, knocking on the door. Uh, there were threats made to my life on the telephone. Oh my! And gosh. I went to the police, and the police were like, "Well." Nothing's happened to you yet, so we right. can't do anything. Like, Call okay. us when you get murdered. Yes, that's right. right. That's great. Thank you, so, police. Uh, anyway, it's so just, there was you no came future. back. Yeah, I came it's back. The yes, long like, and short of it. And I, you know, I was really scared. Even when I came back, I'm like sure. they were going to follow me here, but they didn't. So Where did you it. land? Oh, I landed. I came back home, lived with my family for right. a while in, uh, near San Francisco. Near San Francisco. Um, and then I started a little, uh, kind of a wholesale bakery vegan bakery in San Francisco. And back then it was, you know, we're talking about like what it's, what it's like now to get into yeah. uh, stores, into chains like Whole Foods. But yeah. back in the day, I literally made cakes, these beautiful, glorious European style cakes yeah. in my kitchen at home. And then I delivered them all around the Bay Area to Whole Foods stores in the back of my station wagon. Yeah. You know, they weren't even refrigerated. It's like there yeah. was no quality control. Yes. It was like nothing, no oversight. Nobody cared. It was just like, oh, my God, these are amazing vegan cakes. Let yeah. me, you know, no one really asked any questions. It's so I know, bizarre. It's weird. It, the the. I mean, I haven't been in this ecosystem for very long, but I even just in the few short years that I have, I feel like things have just gotten, I think they're just so, 
there's so many people making so many products. There, that, yes. Yes. I, th- I don't know. Everyone's kind of had to grow up kind of quickly to like yes. make the systems that match the, mm-hmm. the input. Almost. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. So that, that vegan bakery mm-hmm. morphed into a real business. Yeah. It morphed into a restaurant, uh, which uh, in right. San Francisco, one of the first vegan That's restaurants. That's Now and Zen. It was called Now and Zen. Love that. It was a little bistro. Um, and you know what they say is important about restaurants, right? I mean. Uh, <laughs> well, they say there's three things. Okay. Location, location, uh-huh. location. Yeah. So I chose a location that was across the street from my son's preschool. Right. Because it was very convenient <laughs> for, for you. For right. me. <laughs> it was terrible for right. having a restaurant um, because there was like no public transportation there. Right. There was no parking. It was yeah. like, a, you know, there was no foot traffic. So but it was funny. very convenient for me. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was we got a lot of notoriety I and mean, we got articles and things like that, but, um, in order to sustain, and, oh my God, you know, just think about what was that book by Anthony Bourdain? Um, kitchen confidential Ki- kitchen. Co- it was yeah. exactly that. I mean, we had these chefs that were on drugs that, right. you know, I had this one chef who, who turned the burners on one day. It was yeah. a really small kitchen. And then he turned the burners on at the beginning of a shift and then he just took off and left. And I get this call. I'm at home. I get this call from, you know, the server saying, you got to get here. The chef took off. He hasn't been back for an hour and the burners are on and nothing. Oh, oh my God. I'm like, you know, I had right. this, I, I was like a single mom. I'm running yep. down there to try to fix this situation. I know. Um, and it's there, crazy. Yeah. It's funny. In your opinion, okay, remembering those days, mm-hmm. because I have both sort of like the, like the food and beverage hospitality mm-hmm. bucket and I have the CPG bucket. Right. Which do you think is actually more heart-wrenchingly hard? Oh, God. You know, the, the small-time yeah. thing is is just... Well, I mean, they're both hard. They're both but, hard. But, you know, until when you reach economies of scale yeah. and you have enough employees and teams and, like, you know, Neil over here who's sitting here <laughs> next to me, our VP of marketing, and you got great people running great teams, yeah. you know, you can sort of breathe at night. But when you're when you're a small business and you only got a handful of employees and one of them doesn't show up, that means... You got to drop everything. I used to run around the kitchen with a baby on my back, strapped to my back, cooking in the kitchen because someone hadn't shown up. That's what you do. That's what you do. And it's interesting because one of the reasons why... So I told you I started the sauces... Because there was a, there was a need, and my students were saying like we don't want a whole meal kit. We just need the thing to put on our tofu or our cauliflower right. or right. our pork chop, right? Right. Um, but also because I kind of looked around at this at this cooking school that it it was profitable. It was busy. It's you know there's a cafe, there are events. It's it's like, mm-hmm. but the idea of doing more of those, mm-hmm. like the idea of more people and and. And like everyone's got a story and they've all, and they're all good people, but they're all sort of like searching and you're all in this building together and you're hoping that the rent doesn't triple. And you're hoping that the, you know, on one hand, you're like theoretically very sort of like pro all the like labor rights and all of the things that make Mm -hmm. you a better human. But as a business owner, you're, I mean, every time they raise the minimum wage, like, everything has to shift in the business. And it's just, it, you're, it's like, you don't have any breathing room. You're you know? right. And no, it's absolutely right. You know, and at some point when I was running these small businesses, I was running them to keep people employed. So right. they would have a job. It wasn't so I could take right. any money because I generally didn't. didn't. Yeah. 
And how did that, because that did morph into a CPG company. Yeah, yes? it did. Well, what, what happened was sort of like you, you know, there was this white space. We had this, I had this thing that I had published my very first cookbook, which is called The Unturkey. Yeah. And we served it every Thanksgiving and it was hugely popular. Yep. Um, uh, and people were buying The Unturkey from the restaurant to take home to Thanksgiving as well. What, and was it like seitan? It was a seitan-based yeah. turkey, but it had a skin that was made out of yuba. And it was shaped oh, more like yum. a turkey. And then yep. it had a stuffing inside. Mm. And it was really, the skin was amazing. I love um, that. Or it is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was really, really delicious. And my competitor at the time was Tofurky. Yes. Um, so anyway, but... but um, so anyway, I'd been serving it at the restaurant for several years. And yep. one day this guy walked in and goes, this is so amazing. Um, you know, you need to go to this trade show called Natural Products Expo East. <laughs> and so just I'm like, what's a trade show? Right. I don't know. So kind of like you starting, you know, yep. your sauce business. I went off to this trade show. Yep. I thought it was like a fair or something yeah. where I was going to be served. You know, I mean, I wasn't really sure. <laughs> right. What. You had and a little table. I had a little yeah. table. Yeah, it was kind of like yeah. that. So I show up with this on Turkey. And um, I wrote literally $50,000 in orders that weekend. But did you have like a method of... No. <laughs> no, there was no method. There was nothing. Right. Okay, nothing. It's like, kind of funny because we did go. I, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to invest anything mm -hmm. into this until I know that there is actually a mm -hmm. buyer out there who will buy this. So we filled little pouches mm -hmm. in the back of the cooking school. We like taped on some labels. We like used like piping bags right, right, to get right. the sauce in. And we just brought them to the little table at Fancy right. Food. And um, of course, you know, the story goes like, the Whole Foods and Fresh Direct and their and you know who's your distributor? I didn't right, even right. didn't know. Anything. I didn't even know what that meant. Yes. you know what's the shelf? What's case, the shelf like? like the what's, case a, what's the case that? Yeah, case, the yeah, whatever. The case, yeah, you, your code, case count and all exactly. that. Exactly. Right. You didn't zero. have any. Right. Right. Zero. And it took me eight months to figure it out. But it, it's almost like that's the best because then you know you you have a reason to be figuring it out. So right. how did you? How did you process fifty thousand dollars? And I mean, where? Did okay, you so so it, it's really kind of funny because you know we're talking. This is over twenty years right. ago. This is twenty five years ago, and the industry was very very different yes. then. It was much more organic, hippy yes. dippy, all of that stuff. So I got back, and I had all these orders, and I said, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> I had to figure out where I was going to make them because there was no way yeah. I was able to do and it. And how you were going to ship it? And how I was going to ship? Yeah. I couldn't. D d and so I, I started talking to people, and they said, well, you need to find a distributor, uh -huh. and these are the distributors you need to call. So I t I took my my orders and I started faxing them to this distributor on the East Coast that's now part of UNFI, right. but at the time they were called Cornucopia. Uh -huh. And this woman who was the buyer at the time, whose name was Alana, calls me up and she goes, I don't know who you are, but you stop sh faxing those orders to me. And then she hangs up. And so I said, okay. And then I just continue to fax right. them to her. And I just kept faxing them every single day, the same orders. And about three days later, she called me up and said, okay, fine. Right. We'll ship your, your stupid turkeys, but right. we never want to hear from you again. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so anyway, so I, I managed to fill those orders. Right. And then this huge realization came to me at the end of the fourth quarter of that year. I realized, oh my God, I have nothing else to sell. Right. That was That's it. That's it. 
And, and did you make any money on those? I yeah, mean, I think I think you, I you ended I, up yeah, okay. I, I made money on those because it was a first time order. There was there were no promo discounts. Right. I didn't have to give. But I didn't even have to buy the, advertising. The tr- like you did you had you built in the no? The I mean, I just said to the price no, or you, no, none of that right. because I just said you know it was FOB and I knew right. that because my parents had a business. Got it. So I knew this terminology FOB yes. freight on board. You know they show up at your yeah. dock and they pick it up. So that's actually just founders. If you're listening, like there's like delivered price and there's FOB price. Right. And they are different. And make sure that when you are like filling in your distributor of paperwork, you are very aware because if it's FOB. Always do FOB. Yeah. If you can do FOB, do FOB because that means you're not worrying about the freight. Basically, right. you're parting with your goods at the dock and that becomes their responsibility after that. Yeah. So they pay for the shipping. If anything happens during shipping, it's on them. It's on them. So yeah. FOB is always the way to go if you can. It doesn't always work that way, but Right. Okay. So fast forward, um I know you dipped out. You were not in the food business for a little while. That's right. Because it just Oh, it it just, just it wore at me. Yeah. I mean, it was so bad. I did sell the company eventually. Oh, great. I sold it to get out of debt. Right. I really didn't make any money. Yep. Like I really didn't make yes. any money. <laughs> and then the next day we got on a plane uh, yeah. to go to um, Europe for okay. a vacation. My husband took me to France and I fainted on the plane over the Oh, wow. Atlantic Ocean, and yeah. they were going to turn the plane around, and go back to New York, and my husband told them, "No, she just needs a rest." Yeah, and she, and, and we landed in uh, Paris, and I, I was fine. Chills. I was just, yeah. I was just exhausted from running that Thoroughly. business. I mean, another note about mental health: I've had panic attacks. Oh my I've, gosh, like, yes thought I was definitely passing out. Yeah, so don't start a business. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what? Start it with a little bit of uh, intelligence. Yes. You know, and I don't mean intelligence as in smart. I mean, like, do some groundwork and know what you're getting into. And and that's partly why we're all here. But you can't always know what you're getting into. I mean, and that is the fact with any business. Most businesses do not start out big. They start out small. Yeah. And unless you've been through the mill multiple times, if you're, you know, if you've got a, a, a passion project, if there's something you just feel like you are, you, you're compelled to do and you yeah. love it, um, you, you know, you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. There's going to be hard times. It's not going to be easy. And you've got to be able to admit your, your own shortcomings yeah. and figure out when what to ask are. for help and, yeah. and, you know, just admit that you don't know something and, and. There are so many people that are willing to mentor and help mm-hmm. you. I mean, I've mentored a lot of people, yep. believe it or not, at this point, you know. No, I'm sure. So, yeah, you're mentoring yeah. me right now. Oh, okay. So, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to hit the ground running with when you decided to get back in the game and all the lessons that you learned along the way, how you applied them to building Miyoko's Kitchen. Sounds we'll right great. Back. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. 
U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. I'm back with Miyoko Shinner, founder of Miyoko's Kitchen. Okay, so um, this is not your first rodeo. Obviously, you've had ups and downs, and you've had all different sorts of businesses. Um, when you decided this time to you know, start again mm -hmm. in a way. I guess two questions. One, what was sort of the driver that got you back in? And two, what did you, did you kind of construct some parameters for yourself or I'm not going to do this again, or I'm going to build it this way because, you know, I've learned my lessons. Those are sort of two different questions, but Yes, and they're they're related, and they're both very very important. First of all, I want to say um, that I was fifty seven years old when I started this business. Wow! So if you ever feel like you're over the hill and you can't do anything and you can't succeed, don't. I love because that because sometimes you know you only realize the lessons you've learned when you're at that wise yeah. old age. Um, so um, and you know and I I have. You know, also, I think it can reinvigorate you. Totally. I think you get to a point when you're like 50, it's like, oh, my God, what have I done with my life? Mm -hmm. You know, it never really, nothing ever really went anywhere. And I guess yeah. that's it. You know, you're, I'm just going to ride off into the horizon, you know, watching TV yeah. and, <laughs> and <laughs> sipping my wine at night. Yeah. And that's it. And going to, you know, and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. So um, I had felt like, like that. I had felt like. Is this it? Like, this is all I was able to accomplish? Because you had a successful real estate career at I this did, point. I did, but... You it, were, like, living a... Yes. You know... I, I mean, I, I wasn't financially, you know... I mean, I was doing very well financially right. um, because of um, the real estate career I developed for myself and also, you know, because my, my husband's an attorney and all that. So we were doing fantastically, Fine, right. but I felt really, really empty inside. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like the purpose of life is to create value, to do something for not only yourself, but for the world, for the planet to create good and value. And the purpose of my life had always been about food, about spreading the vegan message to the world through yeah. delicious food. And when I stopped doing that, I felt like, what was the point of my life? Yeah. Like, why, would, why did I do all that? None of it really went anywhere. And I felt really, really empty. Yeah. Um, and I just got to a point where I felt like, okay, I, you know, I got to give it one last, one last, one try. last try. Yeah. Um, and I had been playing around with making vegan cheese at home. I'd written another cookbook, mm -hmm. finally, the first book in 10 years. And the book became a cult hit. Right. Um, and, um, but I still needed a lot of encouragement. Um, right. I really felt like I did not have the Midas touch. I had the, the, the dust touch, the right. touch that, you know, <laughs> turns everything into dust, no. whatever that, whoever right. that Greek God was, I don't know, yes. or the opposite of a Greek God, right. demigod. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, the person who really, really encouraged me was Seth Tibbet of Tofurky, mm -hmm. my oh, previous competitor, competitor. Yeah, yeah, who, um, tried my cheeses and said, you know, if you start another company, 
I will invest. Amazing. And that, so that's decision number one. That, it's like not bootstrapping from day one. That's right. Yeah. I didn't want to bootstrap. I knew I needed to get investment money. Yeah. But I, I, I think the biggest thing was I needed confidence. confidence. I didn't have any confidence. Yeah. I felt like I was a total failure yeah. and a sham and that I just didn't have what it took. And it was, you know, my, my biggest competitor, a former competitor telling me he believed in me. Yeah. And Do you yeah. think that is... Um, more of a, a female. Yeah, oh my God, yes. Yeah. I talk to, I talk about it all the time. I meet female founders all the time, and it, it's it's not only, it's it's true not only for the person the way the person feels about himself, mm-hmm. but it's really true the way it's reflected from yep. the business community. I mean, I know that female founders have a harder time raising capital yep. than male founders. Yeah. I I meet female founders with great ideas all the time that maybe get two steps ahead and and some guy is, you know, already Mm -hmm. well-funded and on his way to... There's a really interesting... It was in um, either Entrepreneur or Forbes a couple years ago, but they... They did a um, just like a little deep dive on the questions that funders ask. And the questions to men tend to be in the positive. How big is it going to be? How far are you going to take it? The questions to women, and this was completely subliminally, tended to be, how are you going to mitigate the problems? What are the things that could go possibly wrong? And, you know, in a way, Mm. I think that just starts it off from the very beginning you know, as, you know, you're not allowed to be big and brash in in a certain way. And I think, you know, for me, and your story, again, really resonates for me. I went back to school when I was 38. I opened Haven's Kitchen when I was 40. I'm 47 now. I'm not a 23-year-old dude who thinks Mm -hmm. that everything's amazing and I'm going to crush it all the time. I'm I'm not crushing it most of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like I want to cry. Yes. You know, yes. some good percentage yes. of the time. But I, it's funny that you say that because I think our job for each other is really that confidence. There's no one that's inherently crushing it. There is no one that inherently has the Midas touch. It's about, no. you know, flow and timing and luck and, you know, having people make you feel like you've got this. Right. Um so you felt that going in, and that's probably why this is a different business than the other ones were. Yeah, I mean, I can't say in the very beginning I decided to plan. You know, I was afraid to dream big. Yep. Uh, because with my last company, yeah. I had dreams of being really big, and I failed. And yeah. I was afraid to tell anybody that I wanted yeah. to be big. So I said, okay, I'm going to crawl and then walk and mm-hmm. then run, and we're going to just start out crawling, and we're just going to have a little retail shop and do e So that was the plan. That was the plan. Retail shop never opened. Right. We started e-commerce. It was successful from day one. Day one. And we were in distribution. And we were nationwide within a year. So when um, was the minute, was it that minute when you were like, okay, this is a this is a business that's different than what I've seen before? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Going um, online. Going online yeah. was, you know, that was the way to kind of test market it and just kind of feel the waters without having to, you know... Trying to get into distribution and all of that. And those, the cheese that you sold at the very beginning mm-hmm. was more like gourmet style. That's right. It wasn't, the it was very high end, high end, elegant, elegant yeah. stuff, high end, elegant stuff. And it just sold from day one. And That's it was awesome. like, oh my God, how are we going to make this stuff? And that how did you 
figure out how to make this Well, step. that was part of the problem. And that's the other issue with a lot of uh, small companies is, is you have a great product that you make in your kitchen. And then yeah. you figure out how to make it a little bit more, yeah. you know, in a... In a in a commercial kitchen or, or an incubator, yeah. Yeah. the real key is how do you scale it? How do yeah. you commercialize it? So you've got this line that's like your co-packer that mm-hmm. is producing thousands of cases a day. Yep. Um, and that's you know, the, the technology, for, especially for what we're doing, making cheese, uh, fermented products, fermented cheese out of yeah. cashews initially and now out of legumes and oats. I know. I'm so excited to talk about that. Yeah. And, and you know, and the tech, that technology um, had not never been vetted before. No one had ever done it before yep. at scale. So we had to figure out how to do it. And that was a huge undertaking. Did it, um, I mean, did you lose steam? Did you kind of have to take a minute figure that out or were you kind of fixing the tires on the bus while the bus was going 180 to you know miles an hour yeah well, actually we, yes absolutely yeah. that's exactly right the, the uh, we were going 180 miles an hour changing yeah. the bus and painting the painting yeah. the bus at the same time my I mean, metaphors a, you will notice are yes. not very well tightly yeah. knit but yes. they do well, end that's up exactly kind of making what it was sense. like yeah. and you know dealing with all of the fallouts from yeah outage you know uh, shortages, shortages yeah. where you know our fill rate uh, what a fill rate is when you is how much what percentage of an order you fill mm-hmm. and our our fill rate had gotten to at one point in December 2017 had fallen to 13% for UNFI which is our biggest yeah. distributor so they're not thrilled they with were that. oh my god no they yeah. were they were you know that's when i got the calls like we're going to drop you until you can get your act together and you know, then you got to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? Right. And so, what yeah. would you? I mean, I've had, you know, I had um, Mike Messersmith on, who's the um, GM of Oatly, mm-hmm. and they had a similar, mm-hmm. like the great oat milk shortage yes, of, of 2018 course. or whatever yes. it is. Um, you know, his advice was honesty, honesty, honesty. Absolutely. You have to just be straight up with every mm-hmm. retailer. You have to tell the distributors. You have to like be ahead of the problem. You have to have a solution for the problem before the problem happens. Like, would you sort of echo those sentiments? Oh, absolutely. Or? We were uh, first of all on weekly calls with all of our distributors. Yeah. I had I was constantly writing letters to all of our key retailers yeah. and distributors, apprising them of what was going on. Once we figured out what the solution was going to be, such as you know installing this one piece of equipment for one product and. Uh, other, you know, other like solutions for other things. We build out a whole timeline, send it to them saying, this is what we're going to be doing this. Then we're installing this. Yep. And then we're, you know, so. Yeah. Um, I don't know why yeah. it's, it it's, it's fairly, you know, obvious as an answer. And yet for some reason, I think when you have a product, you're so scared that they're going to drop you that you end up doing the wrong thing for yourself by kind of like avoiding dealing with them. I don't, I don't know why, because it is intuitive to just say like, here's how we're going to solve for this. But for some reason, everyone needs to be reminded that, you know, I mean, because ultimately the reason why you're having fulfillment issues is because you're in high demand and you can't meet it. That's right. So they know that there's like legs on the product. Mm -hmm. Um, And where, so did you, you you changed your entire production system. Yeah. yeah. Well, we you know we built out a new facility. Right. Um, and Did you have to raise money for that? Or? Yes. Yeah. 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 We've re- we've done um, a seed round, uh, Series A and Series B, right. and we're okay. about to do a Series C now. All right. Um, so we've raised money, um, spent a bulk of it on capex. I would right. say 
uh, overall, we've been very, very capital efficient compared right. to a lot of these other startups. You know, in terms of our revenues versus total capital raised, yep. I mean, we're very efficient. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, I, it's just one of those products. I It's funny because we end up being in your set mm-hmm. a, a bunch because we're like that place where they don't know where to put you. Right. Set, you know, that's the call. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if yeah. there was an acronym for that. Um, and... So I'm just you're. It's like you start to see something, and then you start to see it more, and then it's just everywhere. You create, that category gets yeah, created, and it's so yes. cool watching it. That's right. Um, big, you know. I mean, yeah. we're, you know, that's we're exactly in sixteen thousand right. stores yeah. now, yeah. so it's a lot. Okay, so let's talk about. There are a couple things I want to talk about. Um, let's talk about the market mm-hmm. because, again, you've been a true, true vegan preacher basically mm-hmm. for 30 years uh you were in kind of the hotbed of like that hippie kind of culture right now we're seeing all these alt milks and mm-hmm. alt dairies and alt meats come in right um i completely imagine that you are pro building the category and as many people in it as possible creates more you know consumer awareness and absolutely all of that. Mm-hmm. And also, is any of it annoying to you that all of these players are coming on board and they're kind of filling something? And it, does it feel like maybe they're capitalizing on, you know, the market being ready for them? Or is it, just how do you think about it? Well, you know, we always say that uh, all competition is, is good competition mm-hmm. because we're increasing the category. And I really don't think of of other, you know, vegan cheesemakers as being competition. I think of them as collaborators. Um, That's generous. And, uh, you know, we are building this new category out together. Um, You know, that being said, I mean, when I wrote my book, Artisan Vegan Cheese, Mm -hmm. there was no book on how to make this product. Now there's a number of cookbooks that are using my methods and they've, you know, they've done it. And yeah, it's kind of, at first it was kind of annoying and then it kind of chuckle. It's like, what do they say? Uh, flattery. Yes. Oh, I'm going to do well with this one. Uh, what is it? Uh, Yes. Copying something is, um, imitation is the the highest highest form form of flattery flattery. or something like that. So I have to really think about that when I, you know, this light bulb went off in my head when I was writing my book, like, how do I make Buffalo mozzarella? And, when it, I woke up one night and it was like, okay, I can do it this way right. to create this ball. Yeah. And when I had that idea, it was it was amazing. Yeah. And so I wrote it in my book, and now there's like a million right. recipes that are almost identical, yeah. but they all use the same process for making buffalo yep. mozzarella. It's just kind of funny. And the thing, you can't trademark that, you, that. Yeah, you can't trademark these things, no. and it's it's fine. You know, I'm yeah. I'm glad it just gets the word yes. out. But it, the reason I feel confident now is because. Um, we got a head start. Yeah, we got a head you have start. Have a big moat. And we have a big moat. We figured out how to how to commercialize yep. this very very difficult product to commercialize. Yep. And um, we built the team. Um, we built the marketplace. Yep. Uh, we're the category captain. Clearly. Um, and so. Um, Will you talk a yeah. little bit? I've I've, you know, category captain. So I guess two questions coming out of that. One is what is your vision for the category? I mean, right now, you know, vegan cheese is anywhere from like in dairy, Mm -hmm. one little skew next to like 
you know, everything. Or like in the Wegmans, if you've been to our Wegmans in Brooklyn here, it's there is a 40 foot set. Oh, it's of, amazing. And we're in that with yeah. like all of the yeah. vegan products that are sort of like otherwise not vegan products. Right. Do you think it's going to be like I always say refrigerated sauce is going to be what, you know, like hummus in 2009. Like no buyer knew what hummus was. No consumer knew what to do with it. That's how I think about my pouch of Romesco. Right. But in 10 years from now, there'll be, a, there'll be you know. There'll be Romesco's everywhere. I mean, yeah, there'll be fresh sauces well, and well, look all sorts all, of delivery methods. Look at the alt milk category. Look right. what happened. You know, over the last few years, alternative milks are, are almost 15% of the fluid milk category nationwide. Yeah. And if you go to Wegmans or Whole Foods, you know, yep. it's 40% of the category. Yep. And the same thing's going to happen, and merchandising's going to change. I mean, alt milks used to be in some dark corner of the natural food store yes. only, and now it's prominently displayed with fluid milk. Yeah. Same thing's going to happen. So they'll be together, do you They're think? They're going to be together yeah. at some point. At yeah. some, you know, it's going to shift. Right. The merchant, how th- products are merchandised in the grocery store yeah. will change radically yeah. over the next five to 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I think that in our case, especially, they, you know, no one knows if we go in produce, dairy, or deli. Right. And candidly, we could go in all of them. Right. But there, and then, and then there's a like shuffling and everyone's trying to kind of figure out their, you know, how they're going to put these products that aren't traditionally fresh into fresh. And it's kind of a fun time mm-hmm. to be in it, I think. But you said something else, which I want um, listeners to understand. Mm-hmm. So when you say cab- category captain, mm-hmm. so what do you mean by that? And how do you sort of establish that relationship with the buyer at the particular store that you're Sure. I mean, the category captain is the brand that sort of is leading a certain category. Right. So for example, in Shobani. the fluid, yeah, like in the fluid milk category for a long time, Silk was the category captain. Right. You know, they kind of created that whole gable top, you know, mm-hmm. milk category in the supermarket and they really, really led it. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of other brands now that are competing uh, very, very well. They could still be a category captain. Um, I think Oatly's got a good chance of of being category captain in the so-called artisan vegan cheese space, which is very, very young. I think, you know, we're definitely the biggest. Right. Um, We're, you know, there's also the commodity cheeses that are like Daya and Follow Your Heart. Right. We're going to be entering that with ours. Yeah. With our cheddar and pepper jack that are legume and oat based that we're launching in April of this year. Which actually leads me into, because, you you know, we started off with, you know, you started with these artisanal, high end, you know, almost like fancy-ish. Right. And you're really, um, I think you're sort of, you're growing out of that and and shifting into a more mainstream. We're not growing or? out of it. We're adding on to. I mean, right. I, I always like to, you know, you're, just you're describe it as Tesla. That's right. like the Tesla model. You know, Tesla launched with the first sexy electric car. Right. We we launched with the first sexy vegan cheese. Yeah. And now we're going to be launching. Now we're going to roll out the Model X. Accessible cheese, something that's accessible but still premium. People are always going to know that if it's Miyoko's, it's quality. And you are going away from, or not going away from, but you are adding on. We're adding on to, and what we're trying to do, we're yeah, we're going to be the new cheeses that we're launching, uh, and the butter. We have an oat butter also. Mm. Are uh, do not involve any nuts at all. And they're based on uh, oats and legumes. Yeah. Um, and they have, you know, our new cheeses have protein and calcium. What we're trying to do is get away from allergens. Yeah. Um, uh, offer things that 
will appeal to kids and moms and somebody that just wants a piece of cheese for a sandwich. Yeah. Um, and also to answer the need for food service for a great vegan cheese that can go on top of a great vegan burger like right. Beyond or Impossible. Yep. And can be in schools um, that can because be in schools, you can't have right. cashews. Yeah. That's right. So how long is your pipeline? I mean, how long does it take from, do you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, ah, we need to do a cheese on wheatgrass. And then you put it into an Excel and then it goes through a thing. And how long does it take from idea? From idea to, to execution? execution. I mean, it really depends. I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll be clear. We have a full R&D team now. It's not just you in bed at night. No, it's not just me in bed at night. I mean, that, you know, I've had, um, we've been building out an innovation team. Yeah. We're continuing to build that out. We're just in the process of building out a whole new R&D lab. Wow. Um, we've got brilliant food scientists um, and researchers. Like playing with yeah. fermentation. Fermentation and, and just yeah. exploring all the powers of plants and what yes. they can do. Very and cool. Things that, you know, people haven't done before. Yep. So um, we've got a, a pretty robust program that we've launched. So um, I'm still very intimately involved in R&D, but I'm not on the bench anymore coming right. up with products. Um, and was it a function of the market sort of saying, you know, we love it, but we can't have cashews and we need to have or other things? Or was it a, fun I mean, what, what? All of that. I yeah, mean, yes. Everything I mean, together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was price point. Yep. Producing something that was at an affordable price point so that everybody could enjoy it. Yep. Uh, answering the need of all these different form factors yep. in the marketplace, all the voids in the dairy space that needed to be filled. Yep. So there's lots of, of things that go into it. So we're always looking for what are the most popular uh, dairy products in the country, in, in, and um, and is there a wh white space in the alternative set yep. for that? Um, what are people clamoring for? What are our consumers asking for? Yep. Um, so we take all that into consideration in figuring melting. out and melting, yeah. um, you know, whatever a product pipeline. We're also looking for attributes that um, have identical functionality. Uh, and culinary applications to their dairy counterparts because mm -hmm. yep. we want, you know, that we have our European style cultured vegan butter is the number one best selling plant based butter in the country. Yeah, amazing. And it performs like dairy butter yep. in all culinary applications, whether it's baking, browning, whatever yeah. it is. And we want it, our new cheeses, our new uh, cheddar and pepper jack are the same. They yeah. melt beautifully in a grilled cheese. I'm very excited. Um, our chimichurri yeah. with your cheddar on a grilled cheese. Like that sounds really good. Happy little couple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we're gonna. Fantastic. I think we're gonna do a little story about that. Um, last couple minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, you've had a lot of experience working with people. Mm -hmm. um, what is some advice you have about building a great team? You're, you know, you're clearly really happy with the crew that you have now, mm -hmm. and that isn't always intuitive. So. Oh God, yeah. it was terrible in the first couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what the truth, how you build a great team yeah. is you become a great leader. And? And the first <laughs> couple of years I was a terrible, terrible leader. I'm still not a very good leader, but I'm getting better. Well, what, let's talk about that okay. for a second. What do you think you could be better at? And what do you think you have gotten better at? Well, I think I've gotten, uh, first of all, I, everything from, from being really clear on my own vision. Yep. And then being able to communicate that vision to everybody, yep. to um, being clear about being intentional in every moment in in meetings, in being collaborative, letting, um, you know, we have a, I think we have a very collaborative company. We have planning sessions that involve the entire leadership team. It's pretty wide leadership team, mm -hmm. not just the C-suite or anything. Right. 
And we plan our whole year out together and we figure out what our objectives are. We discuss everything, our core values for the company. We came up with it as a team, not just me saying, saying, me dictating. Um, you know, I, I had a vision in my head before, but I wasn't clear in the very beginning of what that vision was. And I wasn't clear in disseminating, sharing that with people. And if I can't share my vision, how are they supposed to know where we're headed? Um, so there's so much learning that I've had to go through that I'm still going through, um, in order to, you know, attract the right kind of people and create a team where like today in, in the taxi, our food scientist was saying, you know, we have so many different roles at the company, but we're all working towards the same objective. Yeah. And that's what you want to build. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I am humbled by the amazing team that we have. Um, unfortunately, sometimes team members can't, don't grow with a company yep. and sometimes you have to, you know, uh, and certain yeah. relationships, yeah. um, that's that the very first time I had to let somebody go was really, really, yeah. really hard. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I've gotten to the point a little bit where i I really think it's about alignment. Yes. You know, ultimately, even if someone thinks they're happy, they're probably not that happy. And there's a reason why it's just not, not aligned, you know, not that they want to hear you be like, we're just not aligned. You know, they want to punch you in the face, but eventually, hopefully. Um, but yeah, and I think you're right about clarity too. I remember people early on sort of saying like, what, what, what does done look like? Right. Like right. when you are giving me, you're like, you're telling me something right. that you want or something that you need or some vision, but like, what do you want me to do? Right, right. Exactly. Right. And then getting better at right. saying like, this is what I would like to see on Wednesday. Right. You know, that's and right. not feeling like that's like mean. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think as a woman, sometimes, you know, we feel like, you know, we can't right. ask for right. certain things or set deadlines yeah. or Meanwhile, people really want... You to they be don't know, clear yeah, and we just, or we assume that everyone understands, right. or we assume they know better than yeah. we do, so let them do it. Yes, and then we're like hands off. We're yeah. not, we're, we're delegating too yeah. much and not really having enough oversight, yeah. and then it ends up. It's like, oh my god, how did this come to be the this way? That's not how I want it to be. And what do you think? So. How did how do you think you learn? Like, did anyone ever say like, hey? I, I just want to tell you my experience with you as a boss, or did you kind of just pick up on clues, or did you read any book? Oh no, I had an all-out fight with a an employee, and, and I and I almost quit my company. Okay. And I almost left because, and I realized I had I took one good look at myself, and I realized I was the problem. Wow. Um, I started reading books. I got a CEO coach. Yeah. Um, I started working on, you know, how yep. to be better, and I'm better now. I think. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not best yet. No, I don't know that. I think anyone who thinks they're best is an asshole. Yeah. But right. Just my point of view. But we can all be, we can all be our best. I mean, we can always work towards that. You just keep getting better. You keep getting better. But you know, I think I'm more, I think I'm more tolerable now. Yeah. I got a thumbs up. We're getting a thumbs up from someone who should know. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to look at yourself and, and, and figure out really just to be honest with. Yeah who we are. Would that be your, your biggest piece of advice to founders is do some soul searching and know who you are? No, know who you are and, and realize that running a business isn't about how great your product is. It's about how great you can be as a leader to inspire and motivate others around you. Well, I think we're going to end there because that was a pretty outstanding last sentence. Uh, Miyoko, thank you. 
thank you so Allison. much for being here. Neil, thank you for being in the room and giving us the thumbs up. Um, Matt, thank you for being the bestest engineer. Um, and for all of you listening, um, I will be back with another week of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.